Hey, what's up? This is Nikki D with Medium Plus. Proud to present another episode of the podcast here for you. This is another Skype group. So we're doing some studies, group of sommeliers and wine professionals from around the country discussing northern Spain in this episode. We talk all about Rioja, Ribera del Duero, and Catalonia. So this is an area of Spain that has a lot of different styles, wine traditions. So the group kind of digs in, each person giving a presentation on the topic. So please enjoy, and I encourage you to mimic this approach in your studies of learning a topic and then giving a presentation, whether that be to your study partners or coworkers, other friends in the trade. And this podcast edited by Chris Barr, and we look forward to bringing you more content and episodes in the near future. So until then, cheers. Hello, Jody, Joel, my wine friends, Elise. Can you hear us, Elise? Yes. Good morning, wine friends. I like it. Good morning, wine <laughs> friends. I like that too. Elise, are you ready to go? I am ready. Well, okay, go for it. Okay. Good morning, everybody. We are in Spain today. Yay! Something a little bit different. So the topic that I have today is Navarra, and that is a region in Spain centered kind of around the city of Pamplona, which is really famous for all of the bullfighting and everybody dressing up in white with the you know red kerchiefs and, and all of that. So definitely a lot of history in this region. Navarra was the last part of Spain be unified. Uh, sometime in the 1500s. So it's, it's always a region that's been kind of independent and it's still trying to struggle to get its own identity. And I'll kind of get into why that is as we go through. As far as the climate goes, there are actually a couple of different climactic zones that Navarra encompasses. It's more continental in the center and more Mediterranean in the south. And they actually get a surprising amount of rainfall here that I was surprised to read. I saw 720 millimeters average annual rainfall, which is pretty significant for an area that we think of as hot and dry. But it's divided into different subzones, Navarra Dio, different subzones. Up in the north, you have uh, Tierra Estrella, which is probably one of the most well-known for their producers. And so that's in the northwest part, just kind of in the northern in the center, Valdizarbe or Valdizarbe. My Spanish is not good, so I will try, but <laughs> I always appreciate everybody's help. And then in the northeast, Baja Montaña, and then uh, Rivera Alta, kind of in the center, and Rivera Baja. And so those are the five subzones of Navarra. Let's see, so up in the north where you have Tierra de Estrella, that's on the northwest side. There are, it's kind of a more hilly area and there's limestone there in the soils. And then as you kind of move over into the center, the northern center part in Valdezarb, the soils are chalk. So some different soils and climates as you go through. So we'll talk a little bit about wine styles and grapes. In Navarra, they have 11,500 hectares under vine, and it's mostly dominated by red grapes. 91% of the grapes planted are red grapes for Tinto, and here Tempranillo is king. This region has a long history of excelling at Grenache, and some of the producers are saying, oh, maybe we should make Grenache our grape and our identity. But Tempranillo has kind of overtaken plantings, about 34% of the reds, and then about 23% Garnacha, Tinta. Something interesting that's happening here, a lot of the producers have been urged to bring in more international grapes. So actually the third most planted red grape is Cabernet Sauvignon at 16%, with Merlot at 14%. Some other international grapes that are grown here are Syrah and Pinot Noir, as well as the native grapes, Graciano and Mazuelo. So those are for the reds. So again, a lot of international grapes being grown in this region, but they're still hanging on to their native grapes too. Minimum alcohol by volume percentages for red wine, Tinto, 11.5%. I'll kind of talk about that as we go through too. 
Then for the white wines, the Blanco, it's only 9% of the grapes that are planted in Navarra are white wines. So not a huge white wine area. And surprisingly, the top grape is not something you would expect, like Viura or Garnacho Blanco, but it's Chardonnay. So top white wine grape in Navarra, Chardonnay, definitely exhibiting that international grape influence. But it's only about 5% of the grapes that are planted. You also see Viura here with about 2% of grapes, along with Garnacho Blanca, Malvasia, and Sauvignon Blanc. And the minimum alcohol for Blanco wines is 10.5%. And I also really want to talk about Rosé, or Rosado, as they call it here. And Navarra is especially known for its Rosados from Garnacha, so giving you fruity perfume aromas. So Rosado, definitely a big deal in Navarra. The minimum ABV for that is 11%. They are also making a sweet wine here, Vino de Licor, from Moscatel de Grano Menudo, which I assume must be a Moscatel biotype in Corona Navarra here. And for that wine, 15% minimum alcohol by volume and maximum 18%. So this is a sweet dessert style wine. Then also we need to talk about Rioja. And this is definitely an important part of Navarra, but there's also a push in this region for the people of Navarra to kind of develop their own identity, get away from being associated with Rioja. So... The zone that Navarra is in is Rioja Oriental, which was renamed, as you all know, from Baja to Rioja Oriental, and that's in Navarra. And in this region, they are, it's definitely Tempranillo dominant, as we saw, which is their main grape, but there's Garnacha added into the blend here to just give the Tempranillo and the Rioja a little bit more weight. So... Don't forget about Rioja and Rioja Oriental in Navarra. But like I said, they're also trying to make their own identity as well. There are also some important Diopagos in Navarra, and those are the single estate appellation, which is pretty much the top kind of tier that you can get to in Spain. So there are three in Navarra, Bodegas Otazu, Prado de Iranche, and Signorio di Aranzano. So those are the three Diopagos that are present in Navarra. And I'll also mention a few producers as well. Up in Tierra Estrella, up in the northwest part of the country, you have Bodegas Julian Chivite. And this is probably one of the most well-known Navarra producers. And they're definitely a big producer making quite a few wines, you know, famous for a Garnacho Rosado, as well as other red wines from Tempranillo and Garnacha. Then in the Baja Montaña, kind of in the south, you have a smaller producer called Domaine Lupier. And also in Ribera Alta, you have Bodegas Ochoa. So some important producers here. And I think kind of my big takeaway points about Navarra is it's important to remember that even though it is technically a part of Rioja or Rioja wine is made in that region, it also has its own separate identity as well. And they definitely have a long history growing Garnacha here. And I think that if the producers focused on Garnacha in this region, it might help to separate them a little bit from Rioja and Tempranillo, although Rioja and Tempranillo are certainly an important part of their economy. Something to remember also about Navarra is that it's a relatively diverse region, and it's a pretty large region too, with mountains in the north. Then in the southeast, there's actually a semi-desert. So even though you have all that rainfall up in the northern part of Navarra, in the south, it's actually very very dry and almost more towards a Mediterranean climate, even though it's more continental in the north. Let's see, I didn't talk about aging requirements, but those are the same as the rest of Spain. 
So for Triantha, for red, minimum 24 months aging and six months in oak. For white to rosé, minimum 18 months aging with six months in oak. The Reserva wines for red, minimum 36 months of aging with 12 months in oak. And the whites and rosés, minimum 24 months of aging with six months in oak. Then for the Grand Reserva wines, you have for the reds, minimum 60 months of aging with 18 months in oak. And whites and rosés, 48 months of aging with six months in oak. And you can also make a Crianza Tinto in this region, which is minimum 24 months of aging with nine months of oak. And I think that's pretty much what I have to say about Navarra. So remember that it's part of Rioja and in that Rioja Oriental region, but also Garnacha, Cabernet Sauvignon, international grapes are important here too, as well as Rosados from Garnacha. And I think that's about all. Thank you, Elise. Do you know if in Navarra they produce aguja? That is an excellent leading question. I don't know about that, but will you tell me about it? From what I understand, I need to review which regions do this. Aguja is like, I don't know if it's Petnat necessarily, but it's sort of a frizzante rosado wine, maybe with some sweetness, and apparently it's quite delicious. And I think it's made in different regions around Spain. So it's A-G-U-J-A, Aguja, I think. Okay. And I had no idea. Catalonia. Catalonia. Oh, yes. I am looking through some notes. I have it in, yeah, okay. I had no idea also about Chardonnay in Yeah, I thought Navarra. that was interesting. And it really just seems like they had some people come in. They did some studies with their at their university and did a bunch of research. And they were recommending, they were like, oh, plant Cabernet, Merlot, Chardonnay. And so there's actually a lot of that going on. But yeah, I didn't know about the Chardonnay either. So pretty interesting. What would be a Rioja producer based in Oriental? Great question that I don't know the answer to, but let's take a look. Glacias Ramundo is based in Alfaro, and he does 100% Garnacha, so that's kind of one of his things. All of his vineyards are right around Alfaro, and he does a couple different, like Proviedad and La Mantessa, which are two different styles. One sees a little bit more oak and older vines, but those are 100% Garnacha vines, and that's kind of the flagship where Alvaro Palacios went over and started Alvaro Palacios and Priorat, and then, of course, they went off and did Rafael Palacios and Gaviores. That's kind of where that family started, was in Alfaro, which is kind of crazy. Cool. Okay. And then, just to dig into Rioja a little bit more, we would see, I think Faustino is in Alvesa side, and then some of the our favorites, like Lopez Heredia, I think Muga also is in Alta. Yeah, they're all based in Aro. So like Cune, Labrio, Alta, Lopez de Heredia, and Muga. And there's one more that's all right there in Aro, like within blocks from each other. And Aro technically, yeah, is in Alta, but is moments away from Alavesa. Yeah, it's just kind of across the, is it across the Ebro? Gosh, the river, I can't remember if it's across, I think it is across the river, because Alavesa is what kind of sits in the Basque region, so it has a little bit of a cooler climate, a little bit higher elevation, but I can't tell you if it's across the river or not. There's a couple rivers, because there's so many little valleys in Rioja that I can't remember which river it's across from. Yeah, field trip. Let's go. (laughs) I feel like I said it every time. (laughs) Yeah, we do have a lot of field trips to go on. We do. It looks like the Ebro, I'm just looking at the map here, and it looks like that's the name of the river. Yeah, the Ebro River goes all the way across, but the Oja River is actually what Rioja is, which is like a tributary, is what the region's named after. The Ebro is the main one, though, that kind of falls, goes from Aro all the way down to Alfaro. Elise, did you say that there was a river in Navarra? I didn't mention that. They are definitely influenced by the Ebro River, but I haven't seen, let me look at my different map to see what I can find in here. There are a few rivers that run through here, but the Ebro seems like the biggest, you know, the most influential one. Yeah. And then, I mean, I can imagine some influence from Bay of Biscay and also the Mediterranean. Um, yeah. 
to different degrees. So a little memory trick that I've used before to kind of remember the layout of things like Asturias and Cantabria and then Navarra and Aragon is I had a hard time remembering which was on the west side and which was on the east side. So I just thought of AC, like air conditioning, for Asturias and Cantabria. And then NA, like non-alcoholic, <laughs> for Navarra and Aragon. So AC, A is on the west. And then NA, N is on the west. So a little bonus for you. Cool, thank you. Sure. Uh, Jenica, do you want to jump in now? Yeah, I can do that. All right. All right. I'm going to put a little map in here for you guys. Yeah. I had a small region of Catalonia. So excluding all of Cava, which is kind of a hot topic these days, as well as Prioran. So save those two regions. I've got the rest. Being at a place where I've studied Spain in depth, it's really interesting for me to dig a little deeper into some of these smaller regions in Catalonia. But there's a lot, and there's a lot going on. So I'm just going to go through a little bit of each region, working from northeast all the way down to the south of Barcelona. So Importa is the first DO that we find in Catalonia. So this is literally a 20-minute drive from like Banyuls. If we think about it, I think of Spain as its own climate, its own region, its own so far away from everything else a lot of times. But it's really, really close to a lot of these south of France regions. So you see a lot of similarities in wine styles in Importa than you do in Banyuls and Roussillon and things like that. Obviously, you got the Pyrenees right there because Banyuls is just on the other side there. So you have a ton of mountainous terrain. There's this crazy wind that comes, it's called the Tramontane, which is very similar to the Mistral, which kind of mitigates that Mediterranean summer heat that you get. There's about 2,000 hectares of vines. 90% of it sits in Alt Importa, which is the northern part of Importa and a little bit higher elevation. And then you have the Paix, B-A-I-X. Importa, where you see a little bit more of international varieties hanging out down there. Something that I thought was really interesting was after phylloxera, a lot of farmers gave up on winemaking and decided to start planting cork trees. And so they are known for their really high quality cork production, and they specialize in sparkling wine corks, which kind of makes sense with cava being so prominent in the area. So they focus on their grapes. They focus on garnacha and carignan. That's about 60% of their plantings. And then they also do Grenache Blanc, Grenache Gris, and Macabeo. Something that I thought was really interesting was in Catalonia, because there has been a lot of introduction of international varieties, like I mentioned, just like in Navarra. When Spain was trying to get on the international map, a lot of people were trying to figure out how to get that, and they thought international varieties was the answer. But here, they have a lot of restrictions on name usage. So they actually call Carignan, and some producers call it Samso. But in Priorat, or in Catalan, that's usually the name for Sinso. They're not allowed to use the Catalan use of Carignana, which has two different spellings. And they also, you see a little bit of Carignan Blanc, which I have never really tasted or seen anywhere else. And it's actually not an official bridal because no one ever submitted it to the Consejo. So they have some unofficial varieties that they play with as well. As far as styles, I'll be putting up a little spreadsheet because they all kind of make the same thing all the way across the board. So they work with Blanco, Rosado, Tinto, the Auja, the semi-sparkling, which usually sits around 1 to 2.5 bars of pressure. Didn't really get a lot of information about it being sweet because I haven't really found any real examples of it, but it's like a semi-sparkling wine. They also do Vino Espumoso which is all done in traditional method, uh, minimum 3.5 bars of pressure. They also do a Mistella, which is a fortified wine. Then Vino Rancio, which is more in that kind of Vanuel style. V Dolce Natural and Vino de la Cure, all having their own regulations in every DAO. Definitely don't have time to go through all of those, but I'll put all the information in the spreadsheet that kind of checks all the boxes. One producer of note, um, this is the second largest producer. It's brought in by European sellers, which I have a lot of respect for that portfolio. It's called Espelt. So keep a lookout for that. They focus in on the Garnacha, and I'm going to put the link to the European sellers website and that producer. All right, moving on to the next DO. So Pla del Bages. So this is one of the smallest DOs, sitting at around 600 hectares. 15 sellers or producers. 
there's really not a lot to note here. You move to more traditional varieties like Grenache and Tempranillo. They also do some international varieties. Something to note, they do not allow Grenache Blanc Tripat, which you see some in copper production, especially in the Rosados, and they don't allow Carignan. So this is a, uh, an area that there's a few people coming in there and trying to start new cellars. They just added in 2015 cellar Saint Miguel de Olo, but really outside of that, there's not a lot going on. There was a ton of wine made back in the Middle Ages but it's kind of fallen off since Phylloxera and it's gone a little bit more coastal. This is a little bit more inland if you look at the map. Then we have Alea as we move. This is super coastal. If you look at it, it's a little blue section on the map, there's only 314 hectares of Alea. I was surprised to find out that it was became a DO in 1953, so a lot longer than I expected. I really like Alea. There's not a lot going on there. There's only nine producers in Alea and a lot of them you don't really see in the United States. But I do like what they're doing. Most of their vineyards face the sea, and so it's a super Mediterranean climate. They have one producer that you should look for is Alta Alea. They do a couple of projects with international varieties like Chard, Cab, and Syrah. They make some outstanding sparkling. They also do a Ponce Blanca, which is just the Alea Dio's name for Trello. So then we have the Conca de Barbera, so there's about 1,800 hectares of vines. This is definitely more inland. It's kind of set in a valley in between some mountains. They focus once again on Tempranillo and Grenache, and then Cabernet Sauvignon, and then uh, Tripot. They've been kind of playing with a little bit recently. A few producers are starting to plant it again. And then Macabeo and Pereira for white wines. One thing to note is when flocks are hit there, they were one of the first regions to really bounce back from Phylloxera because a lot of their wine production was based on the monostatic order. So they had a little bit more maybe motivation and resources to start planting and get back from the Phylloxera. One producer to note really in this whole region is tourists. You see them all over. They make a lot of wines all over and they make some brandies as well. But here they do focus on more indigenous varietals like Garo and Feral with Garnacha, Monastrel, and Carinina. And their label there is called the Grand Mirais. I'll put that in there as well in the little chat. Next DO, this is a little bit more of a spread out DO. It's called Costa de Segre. And it is, like I said, it's the most interior. It's the only DO that's in the Leda province. They have, it's super non contiguous. So because of that, you see a lot more diversity in both varietals, styles, et cetera, et cetera. So red is more strict than the whites, but just looking at it, it's Grenache, Tempranillo, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Revedra, Trapat, Carignan, Pinot Noir, and Syrah. And then the whites, it gets a little wild. Macabeo, Trello, Pereira, Chardonnay, Grenache Blanc, Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc, Muscatel de Alexandria, and Petit Grand. Mabasita, Gewürztraminer, and Albarino. So they kind of were just taking everything and just kind of depending on their soil aspect, et cetera, et cetera, they started planting just different varietals. This is the first place in Catalonia that actually started integrating international varietals in their production. Here you see Torres again, and then you have Tomas Cuisine, which is the first person in Catalonia to do a 100% Carignan bottling, which I thought was kind of cool. All right. Sorry, I know this is a lot of information. I'm going to put all of this up on the Google Docs. So then we have Tarragonia, which most people know for their vermouth production. So Izaguirre does several different vermouths. People also know that starting in the early 1900s, there was 89 years of chartreuse production happening there. Everybody loves chartreuse. Here, what's interesting to note is everybody knows Priorat and Monsant, which is kind of like that area right around Priorat. Monsant used to be a part of Tarragonia, but it was separated in 2002, I believe, because it had a slightly different soil makeup as well as it was higher elevation. So Tarragonia sits a little bit of a lower elevation. So mostly known for their vermouth, but they do focus in on Tempranillo, Merlot, Carignan, and of course Cabernet Sauvignon, Grenache and Syrah that you also see in Monsant. And they also do Sumol, which I do need to do a little bit more research on through Jancis, and Pinot Noir. And then their white grapes, which mirrors Monsant, Macabeo, Pereira, Trello, Chardonnay, 
and then Granacho Blanco. And then things that they, you don't see in Montsant, they also play with Muscatel de Alexandria, Sauvignon Blanc. These whites tend to be a little bit more full-bodied than the rest of Catalonia and a little bit more aromatic. And their reds tend to be a little lighter and fresher. And then last but not least, I'm probably at my 10-minute mark. I didn't see when I started. This is the furthest south. You see 50% of red and white production. It's kind of 50-50 right now. They're known locally for their Grenache Blanc. They're starting to move a little bit more into reds. It's also focusing in on Grenache as well. Something to note, this is a little bit higher elevation. If you look up Terra Alta in the photos, it's pretty dramatic and beautiful. So their minimum elevation is 400 meters. A producer to note, Cellar Pignol, they make more Neo, which is practically like an extinct varietal, and you can really only find it in Terra Alta. They also work with the white Grenache as well. There's a few producers that are making some pretty outstanding white Grenache, which you don't really think of, but I think because of the coastal influence, you get a little bit of a lighter, fresher, a little spice character to it than you would from the white Grenache blends from the Southern Rome. You said, I know that's a lot, a lot of information, but does anybody have any questions? I mean, I think that was great. It's a lot of small regions. I mean, I think of anywhere in Spain, Catalonia has always been the most tricky for me to study. So, uh, yeah, it's a part, and they're always trying to divide themselves, and even within that region, there's a lot of political turmoil too. So that was really interesting to read about a little bit more. But so let me let me let me challenge you here for a second. Of let's say you had a guest come in and they wanted to explore some Catalan wines. How would you describe the region in summary in like a paragraph? I would say this is your typical kind of like Mediterranean climate. So you're getting a lot of those. If someone's looking for Southern Rhone wines, this is kind of their route. So you can find some really kind of rich, more kind of international Cabernet Sauvignon with a little bit more kind of aromatic lift to them if you want some like a richer style red but want to kind of move out of your typical like Bordeaux style. If you want something that's more of that kind of Mediterranean Southern Rhone, Languedoc, you can find some really fresh aromatic reds in that kind of category. Whites I don't really have a ton of experience with. But what I would say from what I've read, you get a lot of kind of saline, sea breeze, kind of textural whites, which I really enjoy, more like island kind of style whites. That would probably be kind of how I explain it. I mean, I kind of have to do this a little bit with my wine list, but we don't really play with a lot of Catalonian wines, honestly, even at 100% Spanish wine list, which is my new challenge. Yeah, I see. I hardly see these wines ever. So. We have the Cellar Pignol, the Morinillo, when we first opened, and the wine is killer. It's like brambly red and black fruits with this spicy smokiness that came along with it. It's pretty outstanding. They make some really good wines here, but a lot of them don't come to the United States. But the, the, what I have had, they're very kind of that Mediterranean, smoky, spicy island wine kind of feel to them. Another field trip. <laughs> and it's right by Barcelona, so... Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I should have mentioned that. Huh. Everything's within, like, a very short train ride or drive. And Porta is the only one that's a little bit of a further drive, and that's about two hours north. Awesome. Well, let's move on here. Thank you. Joelle, you want to go next? Yeah, actually, I just one note. One of the most compelling white wines I've had from Spain is from Priorat, and it's a Granacha Blanca from Saladay Winery, which I believe is European sellers as well. But it is that, like, smoky, the island wine comparison with it was really good. Reminds me of some of the Canary Island-style wines, but it is really cool wine. Interesting texture, just really, really neat if you ever find it lying around, which is unlikely. I believe it comes in at, like, 30 35 bucks cost, something like that, so it's really obscure. The fights um, are really enticing. I really love them. Oh, they're so good. Yeah, they're so good. Cool. So I did Rivera del Duero. So now we're in Casilla y León, which is the largest autonomia in Spain. And this is the land of castles, referring to the number of castles built in the area and uh, structures built during the battles in the early Middle Ages between the Moors and those from Aragon. So there was a marriage at one time in the 15th century that kind of led to Spain coming together 
at one point in time I knew all of that history of Spain and it was super interesting the religious battles between those two cultures and it coming together to be the current kingdom of Spain I'm not as well versed on that now but just to say that the history of this particular region and this area dates back very very far and winemaking dating back at least 2,000 years there was an unearthing of a mosaic of Bacchus that sort of put that date on the map. So really long history and interestingly very short history of the actual DO, which was established in 1982. So Roberto del Duero DO was established in 1982. I actually have two conflicting resources that I'm going to have to figure out. So the Ribera and Rueda organization website says, and then I believe one other spot, maybe Guildsom or something like that, said there's only nine wineries to start in 1982. For some reason, Hugh Johnson's book says there were 24. So <laughs> there was a large history prior to that of Negociant selling grapes to co-ops and whatnot, so I'm sure that it's somewhere in the middle, who knows, but the point is it started very small with about 15,000 acres in 1982 to now 300 plus wineries with 55,000 acres of vines. So it's really blown up in the last decades. There was a small dip in production with the economic crisis in Spain in 2012, so they were down to 200 wineries at that point from the peak of 230. So always looking at those trends with economics and history and all those things and how they affect the wine industry in these regions. So we are two hours directly north of Madrid in Ribera del Duero, and basically this is a wide high plateau about 2,500 to 3,000 feet above sea level, and it is the easternmost DO on this Duero River, which flows west through the center of the region and continues on into Portugal, where it becomes the Douro River, of course. So it's actually a relatively long stretch east to west. The DO is about a 70-mile stretch along the Douro River, and the climate is very sunny. It's semi-arid. There are extremely large diurnal shifts up to 50 degrees, which is really, really high. So I'm trying to think of a comparison of where else in the world that may happen. And I want to say somewhere like Paso Robles, but I can't think in the old world. It's not as common, I believe. I don't know. Anyways, it is large, 50 degrees or so. And there's a big mixture of aspects, elevations, and soils. So every resource I turned to I really made note of the fact that there was just highly varied soils. There are some limestone outcrops that are found more north of the Duero River that do help retain rainfall for those who have vineyards there. But other than that, there is no significant soil structure of Roberto del Duero that you would find in, say, an area like Free Rock with the Liquorella soils and whatnot. So the permitted styles here, we're looking at rosé and red wine only. So there are no white wines produced from Roberto del Duero. The reds are definitely the showstoppers here. And in terms of plantings, it's relatively limited in the sense that 95% of the DO is planted with Tinto Pino, which is the local synonym for Tempranillo. In terms of the bottlings, they are required to have a minimum 75% Tinto Pino to be considered part of the DO or labeled as the DO. But again, 95% of plantings. And there's some resources that kind of flux between 80 to 95. So who knows again where exactly that, that lies. But something interesting about the Tinto Fino in this region is that there's a high percentage of old vines being over 35 years old up to 100 years old, really speaking to the deep roots that these indigenous vines have had to create to adapt to withstand the harsh climate in the area. So what you have is overall lower yields, deeper concentration of fruit, that much richer style. And just a quick little antidote that when I was working in steakhouses with Jaya like eight years ago in Austin, I have a memory of discovering Ribera del Duero early on in my wine career because I was always looking for things to turn people on to aside from Napa Cab, which is what everybody drinks down here in Texas. And they love the rich, full body, the new oak, those sort of things. And Roberto del Duero just popped right up with a producer called Mauro, which I'll get to later because they're not actually within the DO. But again, just relating back to 
deep roots, low yields, deep concentration of fruit, and very high percentage of old vines in the area. The other grape varieties that are planted are Grenache, Cabernet, Merlot, and Malbec. And then there actually is one white grape planted, Albio Mayor. It is only permitted for freshness in the Rosado wines. So you're not seeing any white wine production under the Rivera del Duero DO. I wonder if anybody's doing it off the books, but in terms of legalities on the label there, uh, no white wines. So with your Bordeaux varieties, speaking to, again, just similar to Rioja and the phylloxera crisis of Spain and everybody moving to France and Bordeaux, moving south to places like Rioja and Rivera del Duero. Interestingly, in Rioja, you find more indigenous varieties aside from Tempranillo, whereas in Rivera, the Bordeaux varieties did seem to stick. So you see producers using Cabernet Merlot and Malbec more frequently and in a wine like Unico, making it very famous. So I'll get to that as well. But you do have that Bordelais influence. And then just checking off all the boxes here, looking at aging, this as in Rioja, their aging terminology differs from the normal DO of Spain standards. So you have Crianza category for both rosé and red wine. For the rosé, it is a minimum six months in small oak, being 225-liter barrels, which is specified in the DO requirements, and 18 months total of aging. And then for the reds, it's a minimum 12 months in small oak, 24 months total. The Reserva and Grand Reserva categories are reserved for reds only, and Reserva is going to be minimum 12 months in oak, 36 months total, and Grand Reserva being minimum two years in oak, 60 months total. So making sure to recognize that these are extended requirements from the rest of Spain for the most part. But I did find it interesting that the small oak was written into the, at least the compendium on Guild Psalm. So if that is accurate, then that is what is required, which again speaks to this international vibe that they have going on. So there's some single vineyard wines being made. It's definitely a flashier region. Again, it parallels to Nietzsche Napa in certain ways, but it is absolutely driven by the so in terms of producers, the region was really made famous by Vega Sicilia, established in 1864 by the Chavez family. They have 200 hectares planted with about 80% Tempranillo. In the original plantings, there was Pinot Noir, in addition to Cabernet Merlot and Malbec, which were cuttings that Mr. Chavez brought from Bordeaux. They still have some 100-year-old vines on the property. In 1929, the 1917 and 1918 Unico bottlings were awarded at the Barcelona's World Fair. And this was right around the time where they were really making a movement towards estate wines, because again, originally the region was driven largely by negociant operations and co-op productions. And so you have Vega Sicilia since the 1800s, and then up to 1929, they become very famous, and then still... In 1980, they are really one of the only serious producers in the region. Because again, leading back up to this 1982, when the DO was established and there being only somewhere between 9 and 24 wineries. So they really had a foothold for a very long time there as the only top producer. So I've mentioned Unico. I think everybody on here knows that Unico is their top bottling. It's 80% Tempranillo plus a Bordeaux variety mix. It was previously made in vintages in only particular vintages, so I wanted to look into that, and that was because of their production. So they have a really kind of weird and not ideal production history that I found interesting. So they had these 40,000 liter vats in their winery, and they would only make Unico and vintages with enough quality fruit to fill these vats, which are really, really large, and so there were missing vintages. And now they have numerous 8,000 liter wooden vats and the, the commentary and the, the digging on all the websites and everything looks like they will be releasing an Unico each year moving forward. I don't know that in positivity, but that would be cool. So one of the major points of Unico, if not the major characteristic of it is that it ages 10 years prior to release. So in the past, in the older vintages, they were aging 10 years 
in these large, large barrels. And the commentary now is that they're using a lot more time in bottle before really still aging 10 years, but a lot more time in bottle, kind of preserving some of the freshness and the fruit character of the wine. And then they have another bottling called La Buena, which is the younger vines. It's released younger, but it's really, really good. It's also very expensive. So Unico goes for about 400 to $500 a bottle. So that is your historic producer of Ribera. I think we all should know pretty much everything about them. In terms of the next wave, you see Pescara. Pescara was established in 1970, so big jump here from the 1800s. And Pescara has about 200 hectares planted, and they are 100% Tempranillo or Quinto Fino, if you will. So one thing that I've become aware of that I just hadn't had a lot of experience with this wine, but uh, recently I was able to taste through quite a bit of it, and there is Grupo Pescara. So there are other wineries that Grupo Pescara entails, including Pescara and Condado de Hazo in Ribera del Duero. Their vineyards are at some of the highest points in Ribera del Duero, all natural yeast, unfined, unfiltered, they, when you taste these wines, if you've had them, they're kind of wild. They're just really interesting, really, really good. The top bottling for them is Pescara Janus Gran Reserva, and it's a little bit more modern in style, so it's three years in American and French oak, and it is 100% Tempranillo from their highest vineyard parcels. And right next to Pescara is Emilio Moro which kind of came in that next wave. They were established in 1932, actually before Pescara, and they're a Skernic selection, so they're right in the same area. So, and then I would say within the DO, the other really important wine would be Domino Pingus, established in 1995. So in Rivera, you're also seeing this comparison to the Napa Valley cult producers. So Pingus absolutely mirrors a cult producer in Napa Valley. It is Spain's rarest and most expensive wine, according to many, and I think that might actually be accurate. They utilize new barriques. They're all biodynamic. And the wine ranges online right now from 1100 to $1,400 a bottle. So, again, mirroring that kind of interesting cult thing we got going on with Napa. And then... There are a couple of really great wineries just west of the DO, and Mauro's being one of them. You even have a big, which was established in 1980, and that's just one that I don't know a whole lot about. I have personal experience with it being really tasty, <laughs> but that's it. It's been a long time since I've had the wine. And then there is a winery called Abadia uh, Retuerta, which is established just right outside of the DO boundaries. But again, there was viticulture here back in the 17th century and, and prior. So old, old vines, and this was established by the big pharmaceutical company called Novartis, which rich people like wine. It's great. So the new wave, you're even seeing Torres in Rivera creating with their Celeste label of Rivera del Duero Red. Faustino's there as well, I believe, at this point. So certainly an interesting region. Definitely not super complicated vineyard and, and grape variety-wise. I think it's got an interesting cultural and historical background and that's what I have for you. I don't even know how many minutes that was. I just tried to blow through all of the pertinent information. So do y'all have any questions, any commentaries? I have a few things about producer stuff um, just to say. So Pinkus actually does a Psy label. Did you see that in your research? I didn't. So wholesale, at least in Colorado, Domino de Pinkus is 660 wholesale. It's good, not worth the price in my opinion. Then they have the Florida Pinkus, which is sits on my list at like 175. And then they have the Psy. And so Dominio de Pinkus, most of their stuff is estate owned, right? So Psy, he actually purchases fruit and he pays top dollar because the idea is for them, he wants to work with people that are farming organically and doing best practice in the vineyards. And so a lot of people are ripping up vines like plant Cabernet and things like that so they can sell that fruit at a higher price. So he's paying top dollar and working with farmers to do that. And so that sits on the list around 75 bucks. So if you want Peter Sysik's wine, and I actually like the thigh a little bit better. I think it's a little bit more restrained. You get a little bit more of those Tempranillo characteristics from it. It's still rich and deep in color and flavor, but it's good. Uh, Body of Retuerto, they're actually going for their Pago right now, which is kind of cool. They've been working on it for five or six years. 
the reason they can't be in the DO is because they plant Syrah there and they did some crazy soil research and started looking. They had a geologist come in and figure out every single little parcel and what best grows there which is kind of cool. And then you should look into Goyo Garcia, which is one that you didn't mention. So they do a lot of BDT stuff because they actually do field blends and use the Ibeo Mayor. I love their wines. They're more of like a Burgundian approach. And some of their wines, I had one recently and it reminded me of Gamay. Like it was Cru Beaujolais, it was amazing. So look into Goyo Garcia, it's a Jose Pastor Selections wine. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, thank you for those comments and then thank you, Joelle, for your presentation. Welcome, Jaya, as well. Good to have you on the chat with us today. I'm going to go ahead and... Nice to be here, Nick. Yeah, such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. I feel like we're doing a radio commercial. (laughs) This podcast brought to you by Vega Cecilia. (laughs) So I'm going to go ahead and do mine, and then we'll wrap up with you, Jaya, if that sounds all right. Yep. Okay, great. So my talk, actually, Joelle, you didn't know this, but I tag-teamed onto your topic to dive in even deeper with Vega Cecilia and to then look at some vintage information. So we're going to keep going a little bit with Rivera del Duero here, and I'm going to paste in this link into the chat. And this is my vintage study document that I've been building. I find studying vintages to be quite difficult because it is a very subjective topic. The results of vintages are debatable, but I think there are some really great patterns that we come up with. So if you go into that document, you're welcome to follow along with some different tabs at the bottom. I've got the Rioja, Ribera, and Priorat tab. And what I like to do to study vintages is to look at these different resources. And I find that Jancis Robinson, Venice, and Robert Parker are the most both thorough and descriptive places to go in terms of vintages from wines from all over the world. And this uh, is not a complete document on the by any means. I'm still working on it. But another good way to go is to look at producer websites. And oftentimes a producer will dive into descriptive on tech sheets or just on the site. We'll talk about the comparisons or contrasts with the vintages, although it does maybe have a bias towards marketing of they're trying to sell the wine and it's unlikely that a producer is going to criticize their own wine on their own site. But fortunately other producers will. And one thing I'm missing here is I haven't put in the actual descriptive notes from Robert Parker, which I think are actually very valuable aside from scores. Scores are helpful, but it's a very limited point of information. The descriptions from Robert Parker are really wonderful. So actually, I have more of that in, for example, my Barolo chart has more of the Robert Parker descriptions. But um, with that said, we can look at and see some really nice patterns. And what I like to do is for a vintage review, if it's like a really favorable review, I put that in the spreadsheet as a green color. And then if it is a really kind of hard vintage, that gets a red color. And if it's somewhere in between, that gets yellow. And what you see from these different reviewers is that some vintages, like 2005, is green all the way across. So Jancis gives it a great review. Venice gives it a great review. And then the wines from these different producers have all been scored very highly. And I did a cross-reference of, there's a Priorat in here, Lermita, Clomorgador, Pingus, and Vega Cecilia Unico Vintage. And just looking at all the scores there, uh, 2005 very highly rated. Now we can contrast that with, for example, 2002, really poorly rated all around. And actually, there was no rating for Lermita, no rating for Pingus. Clomogador got one of the lowest ratings in 2002. Interestingly enough, though, Unico got a 95 from Robert Parker. So I need to get the descriptive review of that. But I think that establishing these patterns is very important for studying vintages and is something that we can't get from just one source. So in looking at Unico specifically, we're seeing that it has been reviewed for multiple vintages straight, but there are some exceptions. So 97 and 2001, I'm not seeing that Unico was made. And what's interesting is, so Unico makes both their vintage wine, but also 
their Reserva Especial. And Reserva Especial is released most years and it would be a blend of multiple vintages. And so that like the 2019 release of Unico's Reserva Especial is wines from 06, 07, and 09. So those wines are 13, 12, and 10 years old, respectively. Now we go down to, let's say 2015's release. That was the 94, 96, and 2000 vintages. So it's in even older wines are being blended in here. So 21-year-old wine, 19-year-old, and 15-year-old wine. Or we go down to the 2010 release, and that was a blend of 1991, 94, and 95. So 19, 16, and 15 years old. So kind of on that longest age range, it'll be 21-year-old wine with as young as maybe 10-year-old wine. So I think the intention, from what I understand in reading, is that the Reserva Special is intended to reflect the house style of Vega Sicilia, to really showcase the best expressions, and by combining these different years, it really offers some consistency and a very high-level wine for each release without as much variation between vintages, you know, since it's multi-vintage. So we might think of it, in some ways, I think there's a parallel to Krug's production here. So Krug Champagne, blending from many different growers, multiple different vintage sources. I think they do at least 10 different vintages with Krug. But yeah, Vega Cecilia, typically three vintages here. And so in this column S, what's interesting is I've gone through and starting in 1991, the 1991 vintage ended up in the Reserva Especial release from 2010, 2011, and 2012, all featured that. We go up to 1994, and that 1994 vintage, you know, it was made into a vintage wine, but also it was blended into the releases from 2010, 2011, 2012, and 2015, which is super cool. And so I've gone through this chart and have made note of what's what. And as far as I can tell, 1992 and 93 did not produce a vintage wine and did not have wine go towards blends. So same thing with 97, not a vintage wine and nothing blended. And 2001, not a vintage wine and nothing blended. Now, this is just based on my research from uh, limited sources, and I didn't contact the winery to verify this. But, you know, some champagne houses are going to use maybe lesser vintages to boost their non-vintage wines. Vega Sicilia is not doing that. Like if they're not going to make the wine into a vintage wine, it's also not going to appear in the Reserva Especial. So I think that's pretty fascinating. The very youngest vintage wine that has been reviewed is the 2009. I don't even know if that's on the market yet, but Wine Advocate often gets to get some early access to these wines, which is cool. And it's just super interesting to me that let's say the 2009 vintage was a very hot vintage. You know, it was reviewed well, but it was a very hot and intense vintage. And that Unico has been given a 98 score. So really looking at the number of the scores is a narrow point of data, but it's interesting nonetheless. So zooming out beyond Unico, we're looking at the rest of the range from Vega Cecilia. Valbuena, there's the Valbuena 5 and the Valbuena 3. And those seem to both be similar in price point. And just to go online retail pricing here, you can get Valbuena 3 for 132, Valbuena 5 for 137. It's on Winebid right now for 150. Unico, definitely the vintage releases do fetch a higher price typically. So the vintage wine searcher average is $423. Winebid, it's anywhere from that up to 1500, depending on the year. And often it's those older wines, older vintages are getting the higher price. The Reserva Especial is just a little bit lower, closer to a 400 even. But then kind of going down in price, we have the Allion. And that's anywhere from 80 to to $100 retail. And then Pintilla would be the introductory wine from Vega Sicilia. And that's around 60 bucks. Now there's a newer wine called Macan. And there's Macan and Macan Classico. The Classico is actually the introductory label, and that's around 40 bucks, and the Macan is around 60 bucks. And that's actually a collaborative project with one of the Rothschilds. I think it's Benjamin Rothschild. So that's a newer project. And I think there's a separate winery for both Pintia and Allion. 
aside from Vega Cecilia, although I would imagine that depending on the year, some of the fruit that would perhaps be destined for Valbuena or Unico might go to Allian or Pintia, or it could be separate and just if they're not going to make Unico, that fruit goes to Valbuena. So if any of you know that for sure, let me know. And then I'll just kind of wrap up here with mentioning Oremus Tokai, that is been in the holdings of Vega Cecilia since the 90s. And so they make very high level Tokai wines, even up to Natura Essencia in style. So Janica, thank you for your comment. Pintia is their Toro project. Okay, that's good to know. And so Allian is Ribera del Duero, yeah? So it would be interesting to see if fruit ends up there. Now, a final note here, Vega Cecilia is a member of the Primum Familiae Vini, so PFV for short, and this is a collection of 12 producers who are all very wealthy, fancy producers, but who have also been producing wine for a long time. I'm going to read the other names on the list just to show the echelon here. So there's uh, Paul Rager Champagne, Symington from Douro Porto, Clarence Dion of Aubryon and La Mission Aubryon, the Famille Perrin, so that's Beaucastel and many other wines, Vega Cecilia, uh, Joseph Drouin, a negociant based in Beaune, makes many, many, many different expressions from Burgundy, uh, also Chablis and Beaujolais, Sassacaya, so that is, what is that, Tenuta San Guido, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but don't they also make Bodegas Chakra in Argentina. So next is Torres, and Torres, another international producer, a lot of Spanish production, but also South America, I think both in Argentina and Chile. And then Antinori, and Antinori famous for making Tinianello and Salaya and other wines. Then Baron Philippe de Rothschild, so that's the Mouton side of things in Bordeaux. Hugel up in Alsace, and finally Egon Mueller in the Mosul in the Tsar region. And I think Egon Mueller's done some Eastern European projects too. It would be good to dig into those. So I did take one trip to wine country in Spain two years ago in June and drove through the Ribera del Duero region. And it was very interesting to see a lot of Gobelet style head train vines with pretty wide spacing. And I did drive past Vega Cecilia and tried to go in, but the guard was like, no, 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 you cannot come in. And I think you have to make an appointment for sure at that type of place. But that's what I've got on Vega Cecilia. I forgot to mention the multi-vintage blend of Unico, which is obviously a super important part of their history. But yeah, really interesting winery, so I'm glad that you did that. That was really good, Nick. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, well, we can wrap things up here with you, Jaya. All right. So what I'm going to focus on here is Cava and the evolution of the Appalachian over time. So we're seeing a lot of new things happen in Cava and the region of Canadas. One of, if we go back in time, Raventos, the roots trace back to him promoting his still wines when he went to Europe to try to promote these still red wines in the 1860s. And when he traveled through Champagne, he was intrigued to make wines from his region because he really thought that they could do that well. Well, around the time of Phylloxera hitting, Phylloxera hit a lot of their red vines there in Canada's. And in 1872, Raventos did this first sparkling wine from mainly white grapes. Obviously, they had white grapes still to spare. They had the grapes in Cava, the Cava Dio is for white. You can use Macabeo, Cariada, Cherello, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Saboudrat for the white. And for the rosé, rosé can only be Sanier method, so you can't just blend wine in. Grenache, Pinot Noir, Chapat, Monstrel, I think I might be missing one more. Anyways, so Raventos kind of brought this new idea to this region. As we go along, we know that we have a lot of bigger producers of cava because of things like we think that cava is the poor man's champagne, things like that. And right now, there is a movement called the Corpinat, 
which is an emerging category here. So we have something where in 2017, I think we probably all remembered that there was a new Cava category, the Cava Paella de Calcificado, which meant you had to age the wine longer. It was a wine from a vineyard designation with lower yields and longer aging. But this could be done by bigger corporations as well. And I think that these winemakers decided, let's get back to the roots, the roots of making cava and making it a style of wine that can be not compete with champagne, but can hold its own with champagne. From way back when he traveled to champagne and thought, we can do this in our country. We can make this. We can do some things that are the same. You flow and you get, oh, this is a small produced thing. All of a sudden, how can we make more money at it? Now we throw, oh, we got bigger producers. Now we're pushing out more and more and more wine. And, oh, hey, this is a great thing for your wedding toast because you don't have to buy champagne. It's more cost effective. Okay. And then you just start to think, oh, it's everywhere. You can get Frisinet everywhere. You can get it at the local gas station. I can pick up a bottle. So... (laughs) Actually, the mobile station down my street has it. (laughs) So where they made a lot of money off of kava and they put it out there to the world. Kava is a thing. It's from Spain. I think most people know this. It is like a Spanish version of sparkling wine. So Corpinet decided we want to get back to the, the root of things. Corpinet is a combination of two words. It's Corazon del Penedes. So the combination means the heart of Penedes. I think that's a really good way of describing this because this is now so much of an emerging category that nine different producers broke off of the Cava Dio to only be called the Corpina. This category, it's an elevated category with premium producers to make designation between Cava producers making more artisanal products opposed to large volume products. So what you have to have in order to be part of this, the rules, the producers need to be 100% sustainable, organic vineyards. They have to hand harvest. They have to be within the territory. In Cava, you don't have to actually just be in Penedes, you know? In Cava, you can be in Aragon, Castileon, Extremadura, La Rioja, Basque Country, Navarra, Valencia, but 95% of cava is made in Penedes in Catalonia. I'm just saying that there are places that you don't have to. So with the Corpinat, you have to be in this territory. They have to be entirely vinified on their premises, and they must be aged at least 18 months minimum on the lees. So most of them can go up to 40 months longer than Cava de Parada Clasificado. 90% of this has to be indigenous grapes as well. So we're talking about those three white grapes, you know, Macabeo, Pariada, Chirello. These rules pretty much rule out those large cava producers from participating and labeling their wines Corpinat. So they really wanted to exclude themselves and make themselves more artisanal which really they are. I mean, when we're thinking of Cordonu or Frisinet, we don't really think of artisanal, so to speak. But both of those producers could label Cava Parada Calcificado if they just follow the requirements by law. So these nine producers, which they no longer take part in any part of Cava, they do not use that on their label. They formally left Cava. We have Gramona, of course, which is an extremely well-known, famous producer, country, Ricardo, Julia Benat, Torello, Nadel, a couple others that I really can't pronounce. <laughs> and I think this classification is really going to start showing some interesting things in the market. When you kind of think of linear things, we're thinking of grower producer. And now a lot of us all really kind of know what a grower producer is in Champagne and who they are and why they are and different styles. And then we go down to Franchicora and we see the same kind of 
things going on there if you're in a single vineyard that they're starting to do and they're starting to have all these different they don't have classifications yet but you're starting to do these single vineyards and you're starting to see the producers are all artisanal on certain things even in prosecco you see these single vineyards now we see single vineyards we see different quality i think it's fantastic that spain has really said this is what we want to do we don't care that we're not cava we're going to cut ourselves from that you could have a loss in the marketplace which is regular people they don't know it's cava it's just shaped like a bottle that looks like there's some sparkling deliciousness in it and maybe they buy it so i just think that this approach and what's going on worldwide now is interesting i'm waiting for california to see what they're going to do. California hasn't done a lot lately, I don't think. We're not talking about it at all, at least. Yeah. So, any questions? <laughs> That's kind of what I have here. That was wonderful. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, a lot of changes going on in that region right now. Well, I think that'll probably do it for today. For next week, I was thinking South Africa could be a good area to go over. Would that be of interest to y'all? Sure. Yeah. Ding, ding. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And because as we're approaching exams here, I think it's important to alternate between old world and new world areas. And South Africa for me is always, <laughs> I can always benefit from more in that part of the world. Yes. Cool. All right. Well, thank you all and have a wonderful weekend. You too. Thanks. Thanks. Okay. Bye.